0: If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open them up to Hebrews chapter 9, where today uh, we're going to finish out the chapter that Jeremy began last week, where we looked at, at what Jesus as our great high priest means for our conscience. Now, as we do that, we, uh, something we do on, uh, at the early part of the week is Jeremy and I will sit down and we'll have conversations about Sunday. What do we want to celebrate uh, what do we glean from the time? Where can we even grow? And, and one of the things we, as we were talking, I told him, I said, man, Jeremy, man, I was really excited about your sermon on Sunday. I said, one thing that really stuck out to me is, man, when you, like, I was, I was super impressed that, man, you just started, uh, just, just reciting Pinocchio, right? And I was like, man, that's really good. Like, I, and, and, but then I said, but what really excited me is that, man, as you started doing it, you kind of started hitting the cadence and, and it sounded like you were rapping a little bit up here. And I was like, you know, I thought I was the only rapping preacher that we had on staff, but, uh, man, it, it was, yeah, it was good, uh, to hear, uh, from the text last week that Jesus, uh, He purifies our conscience. As we, uh, saw, In the text last week, regarding our conscience and Christ's sacrifice, really we saw three things. The first part of the text, we saw that God's holiness stirs our conscience. Like when we're met with the reality of God's holiness in light of the fact, and I think all of us would agree with this, we are not holy, right? Right? Some of you are like, amen, like this morning it just, it just showed itself uh, <laughs> in whatever way it did. But we realize when we're met with God's holiness, it stirs our conscience. And what we realize is that we are broken, broken, right? Like utterly broken, the second thing we saw from that, though, is as we are met with the holiness of God, as our conscience is stirred and we realize those things. The other thing we realized from the scriptures is that, man, the Levitical priesthood was insufficient to take care of that burden. Right? The sacrificial system, the the, the ceremonial system, could not do what it needed to do. Ultimately, it could. It, it was not enough to bring full forgiveness. On the one hand, because, uh, man, the blood uh, of animals could not bring the full forgiveness we need. But also, man, the priests themselves, they could not do it because they themselves were unholy. They, too, had sin that had to be dealt with. And so in all that, what it does, and really what we've seen from Hebrews over and over again, is it points to our need for a Savior. It points to the need for another and so we saw that at the end of our time last week. We saw that Jesus, as our great high priest, is the only efficient and effective means to purify our conscience. But, but it doesn't. it's not that He just purifies our conscience. What that means is really uh, the reality that that changes everything. It changes both our life, but also how we live. It, it gives us, or it should give us, a purpose and a passion for living. Because guess what? And it's now our job because we are freed up from the weight of our conscience to, man, live life for the king. You see, in light of what Jesus has done, we live differently. And so this leads to our time today where the writer is really going to continue diving into what the new covenant and the better promises that Jesus mediates mean for our lives. Because you see, it's one thing to say that something's better. It's another to understand why it is better. And what I've loved about Hebrews in the midst of all of the the uh, hermeneutical gymnastics that it seems like we do every week is that, man, the writer's love uh, for, a uh, man, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus and the good news of the gospel and what it means for the people just becomes more and more and more apparent. And he he's not just sitting there and saying, Hey, you need to believe the gospel, go do that. He's saying, No, this is why you need to believe the good news. In the midst of this threat to turn back to other things, man, believe the good news and this is why. Again, it's one thing to say it's better, it's another to understand why it's better. And in our case, just as it is for those reading this letter, the why is so good. Because guess what? The why brings life. It brings transformed living and the, the the command to proclaim the good news of it to others. I don't know if you know this, but man, the gospel is too good not to be shared. It is too good not to be shared. I've said this before, like you don't have to talk about what you love, Right? like you don't have nobody has to tell you or teach you to talk about what you love if you love it you will talk about it right like like you know if you've experienced max donuts like you like you talk about what you love and you don't want them just to hear about it you want them to experience because it is a superior donut right right <laughs> You talk about what you love. You want people to know about it. And guess what? The good news is too good not to be shared. And so the writer of Hebrews following this proclamation that our conscience is cleared by the blood of the Lamb, he expounds on the implications of this by sharing some of the effects of the eternal experience we receive in part now, but this experience that we long for the fullness of. As I thought about this, the, the, the way, the example I, I kind of yeah, was met with today, this morning as I was going through my notes is, man, a lot of times, like when you give examples about Scripture uh, based on life or situations, like, man, they just don't, they, they can never fully get to what the Scripture says. But when we're thinking about this reality of what Jesus has done and the experience that we can have now, and we're going to get into the access that we have with God through Jesus here in a moment, but also, man, we know that there's something coming. And, man, the fullness of it, we we can't even fully comprehend, but we know that it's good. So yesterday we got a new couch uh, because our old couch was the first purchase that Haley and I ever made together uh, as a couple Uh, and so we get it and we get it all set up and man, we're really excited about it. And, uh, so I stretch out on it for the first time and I'm like, Oh, this is nice. And I, I I a little longer, I'm like, Oh, this is really nice. We put the kids to bed and I get ready to go to sleep. And I said, I I walk in and Haley, she's, uh, doing some stuff. And I'm like, Haley, I can't wait to take a nap on that thing tomorrow. (laughs) Cause I experienced a little bit of it just now. But, man, tomorrow, like, and I told her, I said, I'm counting down the hours. Like, I long for that moment. I hope for that moment. We'll see if it really happens at 1 o'clock today when I can be like, kids, go to sleep. Uh, it's time. I don't care. Y'all get on the couch, too. Like, you, as long as you nap, like, it's time. I've experienced a part of it. Man, I want, I want to know the full reality of a nap on that couch. Guess what? Man, today in the text, we see something far better than a couch to nap on. And my hope and my prayer is that today's text will actually light a fire of evangelism, service, and sacrifice in our lives that makes an impact from Brenham to the ends of the earth. And so as we look at the text today, we're going to see two ways that we see the effects of Jesus as our great high priest made reality. Here's the two ways. I'll just share them up front and then we'll work through them. First, Christ mediates a new covenant that produces an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance. And then secondly, Christ's cleansing gives us access to God. And so let's begin by reading Hebrews 9. We're going to look at verses 15 through 22 where we see uh, Him mediate a new covenant that produces an eternal inheritance. It says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay, so following the good news of Christ clearing our conscience through his perfect sacrifice, the writer begins this section by pointing us back to what we've learned thus far regarding the new covenant. This point in the text, it begins with therefore, and uh, I don't have to say what that means. uh, But uh, the other translation says uh, that that for this reason, because of what Jesus has done, because of this new covenant, this is what happens, this is what takes place. The writer is connecting uh, what we've seen over the last two weeks in the text. That Christ mediates Again, He is our mediator, and a mediator is it mediates between God and man, and man and God. He is, a, he is the one who mediates a better covenant because, as we saw two weeks ago in, in Hebrews chapter 8, His covenant is built upon better promises. Promises that were prophesied all the way in Jeremiah 31. Promises that brought about a different understanding of some things. First, it brought about a different understanding of the law. You see, while the law, law was once written on tablets of stone, and He says, man, this new covenant, it will be written on their minds and hearts. Next, it brings a new understanding of relationship. God says, in this new covenant, man, they will be My people and I will be their God. And then lastly, it brings an understanding of forgiveness. He says, I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will what? Remember their sins no more. See, it's this forgiveness, as we looked last week, where Christ's work purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, we have been, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been saved from something, but also you have been saved for something. You have been saved from your sin, but you have been saved for the purpose of glorifying God with your lives so that you might go and proclaim this good news. Because again, the good news is too good not to be shared. So look at how the writer shares the implication of such good news in verse 15. Therefore he, again that's Jesus, is a mediator of a new covenant. So so that, which shows that, that Christ died for a purpose and that purpose was to redeem. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Alright, so that's a lot to unpack in one verse, right? But the first thing we see is that Christ calls us to faith in Him by grace and so that we might receive faith in Him by grace. But look at what we receive. Again, I think we can read verse 15 and a lot of times we just skim right over. Yeah, yeah I have an inheritance in Jesus. Oh, what's next? And let's go. But man, it is a promised eternal inheritance. So, I got a question really quick. How, how many of you in the room, like, you've ever received an inheritance of some sort? You can raise your hand. It's okay. Safe place. I, I think many, of, if probably for all of us, at some point in our lives, you will receive or you will give some type of inheritance to someone or from someone. And as I thought about that, I was reminded of the first inheritance that I ever received. So, if you know a bit of my story, uh, 2010, my mother was living in Korea, and uh, she died in Korea. And so, uh, man, very traumatic uh, thing. Like, um, and, but through that process uh, of going through the, the the grieving process and everything, a few months later, I get a notification from the post office, and they say I have some packages waiting for me. And I'm like, that's weird. Like, I'm 24 years old. No one sends me anything by mail. Uh, What's going on? And so I go to the post office and they uh, bring out two suitcases. They were my mom's suitcases from Korea. They had been shipped over and I remember getting them and I looked at them and, and in my mind I said, This is my inheritance. Two suitcases. And so I was working at a church in Waco at the time and I remember taking them to my office and I set them down and I stared at them for a bit and I said, okay, let's do this. Let's see what my inheritance is. And I opened both of the suitcases and this, if I remember correctly, this is what I found. Uh, about three women's shirts, three to four pair of jeans, a box set of DVDs, And six cans of Copenhagen snuff. If you're thinking, yes, my mother was a tough lady. (laughs) And I remember looking at this and I remember saying, that's it. That's my inheritance. All of it. My entire inheritance is in two suitcases. And guess what? I can use None of it. The snuff was thrown away. The clothes were donated. And that was that. And the reason I share that is because when we think about this promised eternal inheritance that we have in Jesus, man, that's not the case. Guess what? You don't get a call one day and say, hey, there's two suitcases for you. This is not so with Jesus. For through Him we receive a promised eternal inheritance. So what is this? Well, I think the short answer is everything that comes with life in Christ. For we are heirs of the promise, Hebrews 6.17 says, who have received eternal redemption, Hebrews 9.12 says, and now we receive the eternal promised inheritance. Like, don't miss the scope and magnitude of this. It is an eternal inheritance, meaning this, it never runs out. You can't use it up. So how does this happen? Well, the writer is going to spend the rest of this section talking about how this comes about, but begins here at the end of verse 15 by stating that the reason that we can receive this eternal inheritance is because of death Christ's death occurred that brought redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what we know from that is Jesus had to die. And this is why if you go all the way back to Exodus 24, you find the covenant that's being spoken about here. The covenant that God made with His people in Exodus 24, where He laid out through Moses the standard for following God's commands. And what happens, if you go to Exodus 24, you can read it for yourself, two times in just a few verses, Moses says, here's the law, here's the standard. And God's people reply with, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Actually, the second time, they go a little further, and they say, and and we will obey. But guess what? They don't follow through. Not much longer past Exodus 24, as you continue to read, man, the people fail. They don't hold the covenant. And guess what? Neither have we. And yet, Christ came as the perfect mediator of a better covenant because He is the only one who could die and bring redemption to our transgressions. The writer then in verses 16 and 17 describes the function of a will and how it's established for no will can legally take effect without the death of the one who made it. Like you receive nothing in the will, meaning nothing promised is made available until the death of the one who establishes it. In our case, God all the way back in Genesis makes a promise that He continues to proclaim before His people from generation to generation that He's going to do something about the effects of sin that will produce a better inheritance that is eternal in scope because it's built upon better promises. So as we think about that, as we think about even where we've been the last two weeks, in terms of the promises we've looked at, in terms of, uh, man, the conscience, man, do we live as if this is true? Do we rest in light of the internal inheritance we have in Christ? Or are we seeking to produce an inheritance that according to Scripture, moth and rust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal? Like... Like, let's be honest. Let's let's make an assessment. That's, that's the spirit. That spirit is there. Is there? Are there ways in my life currently where I am seeking to build something up because I believe that if I just have this, I'll be secure. But guess what? It's only temporary. It'll fade away. Like in your life, as you think about. What you're, built, what you're after, are you looking to yourself or are you looking to Christ? But when you talk to people, are you talking about all the things that you do and how you do it and how all the power that you have and the way that you've... you've, you've or are you saying, no, look at what Jesus has done even in spite of me. Do I believe that God uses us and, and grows us and blesses us in what? Yes. But our focus always has to be to Him. As we sang earlier, He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. You see, for many, their lives are spent investing in the temporal rather than eternal, and in the end, they have nothing to show for it. May we invest differently because we've received a far greater inheritance. But let's continue because beginning in verse 18, the writer draws us back once again to Exodus 24. Where we see that just as the new covenant was inaugurated with with blood, uh, just as the new covenant was inaugurated with the blood of Christ, the first covenant too was inaugurated with blood. So what happens in Exodus 24 is Moses reads the law. The people respond, we'll do it. No, no, you're not listening. We will do it and we will obey. And then a sacrifice is made and Moses in the text, he sprinkles blood on the book and then on the people. Saying this is the blood covenant that God has commanded for you. This sprinkling of blood upon the people of God is actually, uh, I believe, a symbol or a shadow that would reflect what Christ would do for us by the shedding of His blood. For while the blood of animals could not take away our sins, we who are called by grace receive an eternal inheritance and are covered in the blood of Christ's perfect sacrifice. Moses, then, as we see in verse 21, took the blood and sprinkled it on the tent and all the things used in the place of worship to make them clean as well. That's very significant. That's going to be very significant in just a moment as we continue in the text. We have to remember, we've already seen it, man. The things on earth were made by hands. And guess what hands are? Our hands are. Man, they're stained with sin. We are broken. They are but a shadow of what is actually needed. For indeed, under the law, the writer states that almost everything is purified. Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, a couple of things I want to say here: the writer says almost everything. So, under the law, the poor who could not pay for an animal could provide. Four pints of flour as a sin offering. And yet, even in the midst of that, the writer here says, there is no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. Which I believe reveals the problem of the, the old covenant sacrificial system that Jesus came and establishes a new covenant by His sacrifice. You see, the sacrificial system reveals its limitation in that there was never enough blood, there was never enough sacrifice to make a external amends. Only Jesus could be that type of redemptive sacrifice because He was the only true Lamb without spot or blemish. You see, this is exactly what He has done and it is through Him that all who turned to Him received Promised eternal inheritance. And so, we're going to get to more application at the end of our time today, but, but now I would just say this that turn to Him today. Today, if you have not uh, re- received this inheritance, if you haven't uh, put your faith in this good news, turn to Him today. Quit trying to produce what you cannot. But maybe today you're a follower of Jesus and maybe you've turned to some other things in the hope that they would produce what they cannot. But you're going after it. And Today, I would say turn to Him. Quit trying to produce by other means what you cannot. And then secondly, I would just say rest in the finished work. But as you rest in the finished work, live into and out of your eternal inheritance. And I believe if we begin to understand what this really means for our lives, um, man, I believe that, man, our life would look different. Specifically, like our work life would look different. And if we understand the inheritance that we have in Jesus and the scope and the magnitude of that, man, guess what? I have nothing to prove here. And so I can work freely because, man, I'm working for Him, not for the approval of others. Not for the means of growing something and building something. Guess what? At the end of the day, man, like I'm like I'm working. I'm saying, man, I'm doing this under the glory of God. Man, that should free us up. Like while everyone else is scurrying around, like we just work diligently because guess what? It's under the Lord and not man. Like, and you could, you could add that descriptor to whatever it is, like you should be freed up because of who you are in Jesus and what you had received in Him. We talked this week in our missional communities about, uh, man, the implications of a clear conscience and what that means for one's life. And someone made the statement, they said, well, a conversation that we have all the time as a couple is that, man, uh, most things just don't really matter that Now, they didn't mean nothing matters, but they meant, man, a lot of things in life, like in light of eternity, are not really uh, big deals to get all hung up on. Rather, may we be in the Word. May we be a people of prayer. May we cherish the gospel above all. May we, man, uh, invest our lives in uh, what we term as biblical community. May we grow as disciples and may we go. This is what this inheritance is to do for our lives. So this brings us to the second effect that Jesus is our great high priest has on our lives, which is that Christ's cleansing gives us access to God. Let's read beginning in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Alright, so the following descriptions given for, for, uh, of the need for blood to be sprinkled for the purpose of purifying everything from the people to the instruments used in the temple. We, uh, we see that in the previous verses. And then we get to verse 23, which when looked at can create a bit of confusion regarding the heavenly temple. So if you remember from our time in Hebrews 8, we saw that the temple and all that was in it was a shadow of what was in heaven. But verse 23 seems to suggest that Jesus, who is a better, He is the perfect sacrifice, had to enter into heaven and purify even these things. Now there's a lot of debate regarding the meaning of what is said there, and I'm not going to get into it all. But what I will say is that when you read 23, as you connect it to the context of 24, we find the importance of this passage. For Christ, verse 24 states, has entered into heaven now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. But just stop there and think about that for a moment. Another translation shares that the phrase on our behalf can be termed for us. He has entered into heaven, into God's presence for us. You see, this is where we see the second effect of the new covenant of Christ as our great high priest, for through Him we receive access to God. You see, to gain access to God, we need a cleansing that no sacrifice other than Jesus could bring about. Therefore, Jesus, our great high priest, enters into the most holy place by His perfect sacrifice so that He might cleanse us and make a way for us to access God. Like this is such good news for anyone who has ever felt like they aren't enough or how could they ever be enough to be made right with God. Have you ever felt that way before? Like there are times even as a follower of Jesus, I'm like, God, Really? you would do that for me? like Man, I'm broken. Like I just created a mess. I think to the proud and arrogant, the sad, the sad answer to that is probably no. Because again, they say, no, I'm building it. I'm enough. I can do enough. I can perform enough. I can whatever, enough. But you see, to those who are met with the reality of their broken conscience, to those who are met with the reality of their inability to clean themselves up. Man, this is life-changing good news. As I read this week, I believe that John Piper says it well regarding this great hope. According to this text, he said that this is God's way of saying, come you dirty ones, come you defiled, you deeply evil ones, come you who have soiled yourself and who have been stained by others, come to my heaven... For my Son is there, and He has not died in vain. He stands guard over my holy place, not to keep you out, but to make you clean so that you can be with me in perfect holiness forever. Come. See, Jesus came to bring access back to the Father and now He says, come all who are weary and heavy laden with the burden of your own inability to defeat sin, come and receive the promise of an eternal inheritance through Him. So we have access through the finished work of Christ. But, But look at the security of this access displayed in the verses that follow. For Christ, by entering into the presence of God in heaven, did not simply have access one day a year to be repeated for all eternity. Rather, He has eternal access because of His once-for-all sacrifice. You see, the high priest, as we've already stated, was only allowed into the Holy of Holies once a year to make a sacrifice for people's sins, but not before first sacrificing for his own sin. But guess what? Jesus is a greater sacrifice. You see, if Jesus' sacrifice would have been like that of other sacrifices, He would, and the text says this, had to have suffered repeatedly the pains of death, because again, sin requires sacrifice. Without blood, there's no forgiveness. But this is not the case according to Scripture. For the text states that Jesus appeared. Jesus put on flesh and dealt with sin once for all by putting it away. Which is another way to say that He canceled it by the sacrifice of Himself. He, as John the Baptist stated, is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This point is then reinforced by what follows in 27 and 28. You see, because of sin, humanity has all been appointed to die once, followed by judgment. But you see, Christ appeared and died once, taking the judgment of our sin upon Himself. And guess what? He will return and bring not further judgment for His people, although He will be the one who judges unrighteousness. Rather, all who have turned to Him for salvation and received life through Him will will be eternally saved. Uh, I love the picture that F.F. Uh, Bruce painted regarding this truth. He, he said that on the Day of Atonement, God's people would eagerly await the return of the high priest from the Holy of Holies. And the reason they eagerly awaited it is because as soon as the priest came out, it marked that his sacrifice on their behalf had been accepted by God. And so it created a little bit of relief. Whew. Made it another year. Good. But what happened the next day? Well, 364 days left 363, 362, 361. But we have a great high priest. It was a perfect sacrifice. You see, in the same way, we await the return of our great high priest who's entered heaven. But guess what? One day he'll return to make the present hope that we have in him a full reality. You see, upon Christ's return, sin will not be dealt with again, nor will we ever deal with it again. For Christ will come to save we who eagerly await him. Oh, how we long for that day. But may we remember that while we await the fullness, guess what? We can still experience the grace and benefits of access now. So go to Him today. Turn to Him. Hope in the midst of it all. He will return. Sin will be no more. And all will be made new. But in the meantime, our job is to proclaim this hope. We are to proclaim that Christ is the only means by which sin is appeased. He is the only means that our conscience is purified. He is the only means that our eternal inheritance is received because He is the only way that we can access God. And so we who eagerly await are to proclaim the hope that is in Christ and Christ alone. And so I'm going to have the team come back up. And this is how I want us to respond today. The the first way is is just by simply asking a question. I don't know where everyone is in the room today, but my question would be this. Have you received this eternal inheritance? God's Word reveals that Christ calls... And that we are to receive. And so, man, today, if you haven't received his eternal inheritance, I want to invite you to that. If you have questions about what that means, man, come talk to myself or Jeremy or one of our partners. They would love to share, uh, man, the reality of what the good news of the gospel does for your life. The second thing I want you to respond in is just the truth that Christ cleansing gives us access to God. And so I want to invite you, not just in this moment, but daily, just draw near. Turn from sin and other means of identity and purpose. Be quick to realize the access you have in worship and worship in spirit and in truth. And where you struggle to do so, find some accountability to help you and to encourage you. And then lastly, I want to call you to go and proclaim this eternal hope to others. Again, the good news is too good not to be shared. Go and share it. Go and share the reality of what Jesus has done. And so i want to invite you to respond to that. And, and um, the second thing we're going to do is we're going to share in communion. So each week, something that we do is we share in the remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to come and partake in this. But as you partake in it, we want you to be reminded of what Jesus has done and how that gives you access now, but also what's to come. That there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb one day. And we hope for that day. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we would ask that you not... Come and participate, not because we want to ostracize, but we, man, we believe that this, uh, man, this is costly. But with that, what we again, what we would like to do is we would like to talk to you about it, what it means to follow Jesus, and remember exactly what this is. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, Nathan will be up here on this side, I'll be down here, and, and we uh, will present the elements to you. You can begin to come forward, and, and we will uh, respond through taking communion and uh, through song. So Father, we say now that um, that we like John, that we like many in Scripture uh, when met with the reality of Your holiness, uh, uh, man, realize our inability. That we as we see in Revelation can cry out, is anyone worthy and, and but also at the same in the same breath, crowd, that you are and you alone are. May may that be the reflection of our lives, that you are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. That our lives will be marked by we are not, but he is. And that we would rest in the reality of the new covenant. That we would uh, turn to You because through Your Son we have access. But God, also that we would proclaim this good news to anyone and everyone. May that be our heart. In Jesus' name, Amen.